When I came up with the name Chatter That Matters, I did so with intent. I wasn't creating a podcast that would drive in a narrow lane like true crime mysteries or pop culture, nor could I trade in my name. My interest was in life journeys, overcoming circumstances, chasing dreams, and how people change their world and ours for the better. And the word matters is really about all that matters to you. Love, family, relationships, acceptance, accessibility, security, purpose and meaning, surviving, thriving, exploring, growth, happiness, finances, well-being, freedom and autonomy, education, knowledge, community, social connections, accessibility, diversity, our planet, our creativity, our self-expression, and even your legacy and your impact. And I would argue that the two that matter most are money and health. Money can't buy you happiness nor guarantee your health, but it can be an enabler and an accelerator of your pursuit. Now health, health is above all, your physical and mental health. We can do many things to improve our health, to create a moat to prevent sickness and disease, but even our best efforts are sometimes not enough. At any moment, a body can be stricken and attacked, sometimes by a slow-burning fuse that is difficult to diagnose and therefore treat, and other times by a sledgehammer that knocks us off onto a new path where we must navigate into uncharted territories, rely heavily on each other, take on and share pain, and even at times see life surrendered. And that is the essence of my story today. My guest wasn't just healthy, she was an exercise fanatic, an Ironman athlete, she climbed mountains, and she was someone who could effortlessly ride 50 miles a day for weeks at a time on her bike. She didn't drink or smoke, her mental state, you could argue, had few filters as she was in a constant pursuit to test the boundaries of her human ability. Until one day, she couldn't. And I knew it. I knew it. I knew there was something wrong in my body. An undiagnosed tumor had come to life inside her brain and had been growing possibly for 10 years until it was impossible to ignore. Forced to uh, stop and reflect on my entire life. The whole trajectory of my life changed. Her name is Rissa August. Step into her shoes and ride with her as she tells her incredible story and what she had to do to overcome circumstances and chase some new dreams. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Rissa August, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. In 2020, you wrote this personal story, and I was wondering if we could begin this interview with you reading it to my listeners. It was September 2018, in preparation for my next big cycling event, a 100-mile century ride in New Mexico. I rode 50 miles a day for weeks and pumped iron to keep my quads solid. I loved every minute of it. The surge of adrenaline on the fast downhill stretches of road, the feeling of euphoria crossing the finish line, and the sense of accomplishment I gained from conquering intense personal challenges left me feeling complete. I am an Ironman triathlete. 500-mile bike tours are my norm. Climbing mountains around the U.S., Nepal, and other countries has been my lifetime hobby. Mostly, though, I'm just a girl who loves to ride her bike. Preparing for this bike ride felt different, however. 
I had been training all summer, but I felt I could never recover. I was exhausted. I could barely get out of bed. Severe, continuous headaches had me sleeping two to three hours each night, propped up in hopes of finding some relief. Something was obviously wrong. Months, even years earlier, I told my doctor that I was certain something wasn't right in my body. My weight had increased significantly despite being a health and fitness fanatic. I had excessive hair growth, severe headaches, extreme, extreme fatigue, and joint pain, just to name a few of the symptoms. She said I was overtraining and that the weight gain was nothing to worry about because I was so fit. Not being someone who sees doctors regularly, I deduced that the hair growth was my Romanian heritage. The headaches were dehydration, and the fatigue and joint pain were from training too hard. But how could I explain the ping-pong-sized bony spur growing out of the side of my head? Or symptoms of being menopausal in my 30s? Or sudden weight gain when my eating habits had not changed? Or the symptoms of an irregularly behaving thyroid despite normal blood work? My doctor simply crinkled her nose and tilted her head in confusion, saying, Huh, that is strange. Well, I finished my 100-mile century ride, but instead of blazing through the challenging course, I was one of the last ones to finish. And then the weeks following, I felt physically annihilated. The headaches worsened and became close to unbearable. This time, I asked my doctor for an MRI. She said, no, I don't think that's it. I don't think you need one. To get people to step into your shoes, I want to sort of ride back into your childhood to just kind of talk about how you're wired and your approach to life. And and the obvious question first is, where did you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. I love reading your book, and we're going to talk about it a lot more. But when your your dreams, you know, they always talk about people wanting to be an astronaut or you wanted to be an archaeologist because of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I can't see you as someone with a toothbrush sitting in a pit for hours trying to uh, make sense of the, whether that thing is a knife or a bull. I mean, what attracted you to this whole concept of archaeology? It was the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. I was fascinated, and I think it was the adventure of it and the exploration. Um, I, I was just so curious. I was such a curious child. And it's funny because when, when most little girls were out playing with dolls and house, I was digging in the backyard trying to find animal bones and things like that. And the other thing that you talk about from your childhood is that you were always a pleaser. You wanted to, to make everyone around you happy. I'm curious, was it because within your family unit, there was a lot of tension or is it just kind of you're just wired to to make peace? I grew up with an alcoholic father uh, and an extremely abusive household um, from both parents and physically and verbally abusive. Somewhere along the line, it I took it on as my job to try to keep the peace. If I'm as good as I can be, if I'm perfect, then maybe it'll be enough to bring everyone together and everyone will be happy and love each other. And if I can just be really good and, as I said, as perfect as possible, maybe I can fix things. You know, I grew up in a similar household, but not so much on my mother's side, my father's side. And when you 
talk about that, you just see the this role that kids suddenly have to try to to be adults in the room to try to find a way to keep the shoe from dropping and and from a spark igniting into a firestorm. I mean, when you talk about, you know, riding 50 miles a day, like it was, you know, skip around the park. Do you think part of that was just your, your need to escape into something that you were fully in control of? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, (laughs) it's funny you say that. Um, because that's a that's a little bit what I t- or that's a lot of what I talk about in my book is um, how this bike ride and adventure I took part of it was to escape, <laughs> but also to heal. Before we get to when your body's not starting to feel right, fill in the gaps. I mean, you talked about this childhood and being a pleaser, but what did you kind of do to find yourself in a world where uh, it wasn't easy to find a place within your the four walls of your home? It was important for me to control everything in my life and to do everything perfectly. So if someone ran a half marathon, I ran a full marathon, you know, things like that. I I, I was always trying to overachieve uh, and excel at everything, even with my work and my job. But it was around, yeah, 2011, where um, I was invited on a 500-mile bike tour. It was hard. I struggled to finish. Things started getting harder and harder. That's kind of when I started noticing symptoms and things going awry in my body. But I still thought it was something I was doing wrong. It was something like, okay, what am I, what do I need to figure out here? Like, what am I doing wrong? And uh, am I training wrong? Am I eating too much? I listened to an interview you did with your boss, Melissa. Even though you're going through these symptoms and where a lot of people, when they take time off of work is to relax or sit on a beach and you're just off the tongue roll. I just, you know, did a 500 mile bike ride. It was hard. Most of the people listening will go, of course it was hard. But Melissa describes your, like you were this super achiever employee. If anything, she said she had to work not to take advantage of the fact that you would take on almost anything. You wouldn't leave that desk until it was done perfectly. Did this all stem from trying to be have somebody that would validate who you are or was it just who you are? It could definitely stem from from my childhood and and growing up and trying to trying to have get some validation somewhere. And I did I did everything perfectly and I rarely made mistakes. I rarely ever made mistakes. So Could you ever shut your brain off that when you went home and said, you know, I, I put my work away. It was a great day's work. Or did you just jump from perfection at work to perfection in the gym to perfection on the on the bike? My mind was always thinking about it and how I can do better. And and if I if I did make the rare mistake, oh my gosh, I would beat myself up like crazy. I wouldn't sleep for days. Did you have anybody in your life that just let you know that it's okay to be okay? Uh yes, I, I did, but I couldn't hear it. Maybe for you, that's okay. Not for me. (laughs) Do you ever, and again, I'm not trying to, because I'm not, uh, I'm just a curious human being, but in some ways that this drive for perfection, you'd have to say is you weren't mentally healthy because you couldn't just be you. I mean, I can look back and say, yeah, that's not healthy, healthy way to think or move in the world at all. But back then felt I was always right and perfect. And yeah, my way was the right way. And why isn't everyone else 
trying to do everything perfectly. And if I'm crossing the line with any personal, just hold me back. But I'm just curious about relationships, physical relationships, other people in your life. Could you ever quieten yourself down to the point where you could meet somebody somewhere towards halfway and say, we can enjoy this moment together? Back then, I had very high expectations. And when I say back then, pre-diagnosis, I had very high expectations of people. I don't know that I paused long enough to try to understand them or where they were coming from. Because if if people weren't operating the same way I was, I I simply didn't understand it. Didn't make sense to me. So 2011, you're not feeling right. The symptoms are growing. It's now 2018. And you say to the doctor, I don't really care what you think. I need an MRI. What happens next? So I go in for, I get an MRI, you know, and, and she's like, well, I don't think you need one, but okay. And I get my MRI. And one week later, I get an email from her, one sentence saying, you have an enlarged pituitary, you need to see an endocrinologist. And that was it. And I I didn't know what, I don't even think I knew what a pituitary gland was, and I didn't know what an endocrinologist was. And that gland really is the quarterback of all the glands in your body. That's the last gland that you want a tumor sitting on, isn't it? Yes. It's the control center of the body, which is quite humorous now that looking back, and I was someone who had to always be in control. You go to see specialists. You find out there's a lot more to that email than that cryptic sentence your doctor sent. And in fact, she didn't even apologize and say, boy, did I have this wrong. But we'll leave that. That's not for this story. What kind of blow did they hand you when you started to understand what these words meant? Yeah. So I'm sitting in the endocrinologist's office and there's a the on the computer screen is an image of a skull and you can see the two eyeballs and there's this big gray blob in between the two eyeballs. And she's like, this has got to come out. And it was so surreal. And I was like, well, I, I don't know what that means. And I'm very busy. So can we just get on with it? And she's like, well, no, this means brain surgery. <laughs> and, um, and I still, it still wasn't computing. And, and then she decides to say, and furthermore, you have this rare disease. Um, I'm 99% sure one test will confirm it for us. But it was a mix of emotions because I, I felt validated. Like I felt for years, I, like I knew, I knew something was wrong. I, and I kept searching and trying to figure it out and doing my own research and I could not figure it out. Nothing left me, led me to a pituitary tumor. And I felt validated and confused at the same time. <laughs> Did she sort of outline then or soon after what this new gauntlet in life? Cause it was no longer about, an Ironman or 500-mile bike race. I mean, did you ever comprehend that this could be life or death or a very different life than you that you ever thought someone with such, you know, high expectations of themselves would have to live? Oh, no way. I was going to be I was going to be back on my bike in no time. I was going to be back to training in no time. So whatever kind of rules were out there in the universe, they didn't pertain to me. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that you had to go through was surgery, though, right? Yes. How hard was it for you, who's always been in control, to try to navigate the realities of a healthcare system, healthcare insurance, trying to understand 
different opinions and stuff. I mean, that you suddenly go from being in control, I would imagine, to quite out of control. Yes, absolutely. And I, I had to see many specialists and doctors, and I, I wasn't a favorite because I was very, well, controlling and outspoken and <laughs> trying to get the answers, really. When you decide to have surgery, and what I read, there was sort of three or four months before you were going to go into it. And Melissa takes on a very different role to me in your book. She becomes maybe less of a boss to almost a mother figure or a sister. I thought that was just an important part of you kind of realizing maybe there was more to life than just you. I finally was getting the support, I perhaps, and love that I always uh, probably was seeking since childhood. And I was still struggling to accept it. It's it's almost like I didn't even know what it was to accept it. Um, but but yes, absolutely. She really became a powerful, loving, supportive force during that time. So you have surgery and you come out of it. And in Hollywood, it's always, you know, you recover and the next day, like you said, you get on your bike. But even months after your surgery, you describe yourself as unable to leave the house, barely able to walk around the block, go to your mailbox. And you knew you couldn't exist in this way. I mean, this must be for you feeling like every day wet cement is being poured on you. You're getting further and further away from everything that you valued, which is your way to just get out and escape and ride Captain Ride. And that's such a good metaphor for it because some days it actually felt like that. Like I was in cement and I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't drag myself out of bed. And I, I, I mean, I was beating myself up for it. I was still blaming myself at this point of like, why aren't you stronger than this? And better than this. And you need to get out there. And um, so I was pretty hard on myself during that time. After the surgery, it's not that, well, come back and see me in six months. I mean, you've almost given a life sentence of being very attached to medicine and radiation treatments and a whole variety of things that once again are going to be obstacles you have very little control over. I was such a health fanatic. I wouldn't even take ibuprofen or Tylenol. Like I, I, I would try to not put anything, what I called toxic in my body, like ever. And so all of a sudden I'm faced with the decisions of radiation treatment. And now I have to be on medication for life. And I have to constantly go to the doctor and get poked and prodded and blood work and, and that and MRIs. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's, it's the rest of my life. Did you ever become not only a patient, but a study that for the universities or anything that people said, I really, we want to learn from what you're going through? I did, but not necessarily for those reasons. Uh, some medical professionals and pharmaceutical companies, the attention I got from them was, wait a minute, you're a patient with acromegaly and you're going to do what? You're going to do this bike ride? Like, so when I made that decision to do this bike ride. Like that's, <laughs> that's what caught their attention. <laughs> so let's talk about it because you've written this incredible book, The Road Unpaved, Border to Border with a Brain Tumor and a Bike. And how you describe this is you're sitting in this cement, you're not going anywhere and you decide you need once again to go to the Riza August playbook that says, I'm going to push myself and test my abilities. But what you give yourself as a goal would be something that would test the healthiest of people. 
not someone that is, you know, attached to medicine and injections and medical. So tell us about that bucket list and what led you to decide to do what you did. I think I I realized that this was not how I wanted to live. So I was on the couch again in my raggedy, ratty, gray sweatpants. And I just, I remember thinking, I cannot live this way. Riding across country was always something I wanted to do. And it started coming into my awareness that I never gave myself permission to really fully live and be who I wanted to be. I always had these limitations and these blocks. Well, I have to be very structured and rigid and do it this way. And and I all of a sudden, something just came over me. And I'm like, I want to live. I want to live and live fully. So I start looking at cross-country, um, coast-to-coast bike tours, um, and none of them were exciting me. And then I found the Pacific Coast bicycle route. Well, you call it a road. It's 1,845 miles. <laughs> yes. it's not, a road to me is like how I get to the grocery store. I mean, <laughs> and, and it, it's from Canada to Mexico, right? Yes. Where yes. do you start in Canada? At the border. Um, but I, you know, I landed in Bellingham, uh, Washington, and then rode up to the border and then turned around. The doctor's and the medical community are not happy with you because again, now they're losing control of you. They're probably finding they finally wrestled to you, wrestled you to a point of somewhat submission. And you come back to them and say, no, I'm going to do this. But they're pretty justified because when you set this goal, from what I read in your book, I mean, you could barely ride around the corner. Yeah. Well, I also had from surgery a complication called diabetes insipidus, which actually doesn't have anything to do with sugar. It has to do with sodium levels in your body. So they were like, wait a minute, you have dehydration and hyponatremia to worry about. Like you are at high risk of stroking out um, doing something like this. Um, And then not to mention because of the nature of the disease, you should be doing things like swimming, not biking or lifting weights or walking. So that fueled me more. That that was like the minute someone tells me I can't do something, well, okay, challenge accepted. How long did it take you from going to be, I could barely get to the mailbox, to putting yourself in a position where you, you thought that with the right team in place, you could answer this burning desire to actually ride the Pacific Coast? Yeah, I think it was 10 or 11 months. Was there days where you felt you're taking pedaling two miles forward and then one mile back? Or was it, did you start to see that there was constant improvement? Definitely some days were like, what am I doing? Am I trying to prove this to me or others? Um, Because some days it was hard enough to just load my bike and get in the car to, to go park where I was going to start my bike ride from. So, so, so like I said, some days it was just hard enough to get out of bed, but it was like a torch. It was like this beacon of, and I just wanted to go in that direction. And how did you convince other people to join you on this dream? Because the people that I know that are into this level of cycling really like to push each other to greatness you know, at times they must have thought at the beginning, we're going to have to be, we're going to have to go at her pace versus the pace we might want to. It's interesting. In my book, I talk about how, like, I actually didn't want any help at first. I wanted to prove to everyone I can do this on my own. Um, but I did hire the van support because I I thought, 
okay, if I just, if I don't have to worry about carrying my gear and medications and anything I need, and in case of emergency, there'll be a van. And I thought that would be the easier decision. Um, (laughs) it wasn't, but, um, but initially I didn't want the help. I wanted to be left alone. This was my healing journey. I was going to do it myself. Um, but then again, I started really leaning into, well, people genuinely want to support me. They genuinely care about me and I could start receiving that, you know, and this was all how I started shifting as a human. And when you're on this ride, how often did you want to quit or was it just a sense that once that I pushed the pedal forward, I was going to make it no matter what? Well, the old me was like, yeah, you're going to get through this no matter what. At day five, when I realized we didn't have a rest day for another six days, I was like, how am I going to do this? I mean, it not only did my body hurt, it just felt so battered. Um, But it was rainy and cold (laughs) and windy and pretty miserable conditions for like weeks. (laughs) And were you out there cycling on your own? Was there other people cycling with you? There were uh, 10, 11 others that um, also used the van to transport their gear, but none of us knew each other. I described the characters really well in my book and I didn't want to get to know any of them. I was there on a mission, my own mission, personal mission, and I didn't need anyone's help. And when you describe the characters and, and you do it so wonderfully, did you ever think when they, if they make a movie one day, who would play who? <laughs> I haven't thought about, well, let, let me refer. I, I've thought about like, I wonder who would play me. Yes. <laughs> who do you think would play you? Um, I don't know. My um, celebrity doppelgangers. People have told me Demi Moore, <laughs> um, so and Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> so. How did it feel when you finished? It wasn't as euphoric as I thought. The border was ominous, um, and it was very sad. Um, over six weeks, you cannot not get to know people really well, and everyone just kind of dispersed. I was like, oh my gosh, now I have to go back to my real life. It didn't have this fabulous ride off into the sunset ending that perhaps I hoped it would. And the people that finished with you, did all 11 riders make the, make the trip, get to the finish line? Some chose not to ride to the border because we actually, this is going to be gross, but we actually had to ride through the Tijuana Slough. (laughs) So those of us who did, um, we just picked up our feet and pedaled as hard as we could to hopefully coast as quickly through it as possible. (laughs) We return my three takeaways. And then Wayne Bossert joins me to talk about why RBC is supporting brain research in Canada. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Did you know a traumatic brain injury happens every three minutes in Canada and the impact on the victim, the family, and our healthcare system? Well, it can be emotionally, physically, and financially paralyzing. Add to that our aging population dealing with dementia and other brain disorders. So a big shout out to the RBC Foundation for being part of Brain Canada since day one and investing more than $2 million to fund breakthrough research. Supporting and advancing world-renowned research while it matters to you, to our healthcare system, and to RBC. 
if I see something standing in between me and where I want to get to, instead of it stopping me in my tracks, well, how can I go around it? How can I pivot? How can I go over it? Or sometimes you have to go through it and it's really hard, but it gets you to where you want to be, which, you know, oftentimes is a much better place. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Risa August, and she's truly one who defies all odds with her spirit and spirituality. You're an inspiration, and your book is something that I'm going to obviously put in the show notes, but encourage people to read because it's it just truly is such an incredible accomplishment. I had a gentleman on my show a few years ago, W. Mitchell. W. Mitchell came back from Vietnam is, and he was a gorgeous human being and got his job. But he's, you know, he survived Vietnam intact and riding his brand new motorcycle, just took his first flying lesson, got sideswiped by a laundry truck and his gas tank exploded and he got burned past the point. Nobody thought he would survive. And about seven months later in such pain, he said, can I get my flying manuals? I want something. That was his bucket list. He wanted to fly. And everybody just thought, are you like, they didn't know if he's still going to make it or not. And he came out of that hospital and he talked about how the fresh air felt like a torch on his freshly minted new skin, but he started flying and he had an accident and he crashed and became a paraplegic. So he's a badly burned individual. His face is disfigured. He has stumps for a finger, learned how to fly. And he wrote a book. It's not what happens to you. It's what you do about it. And he's one of the most inspirational uh, people I've ever met. And it's what you do about it is interesting. And what are you going to do next? What's going to keep you moving in this sense of I'm dealing with a whole different body, a whole different set of circumstances, but as you said, I want to live. Well, I did I did go on to Peru and hiked over the Sulcante Pass, which was another bucket list item of mine. And I started taking a lot of classes. I, I started letting go of like, okay, I have to be the girl who's with, always on my bike. And I started letting go of that person and embracing all these new things. So I've I've taken a boxing class. I've taken a silks aerialist class. I even took a dominatrix class, which I still am bashful and giggle about. But like, I'm just trying all these new incredible things just to try them. And some are fun and some I'll never do again. But um, I'm still so happy that I've tried them. And, um, and then my next big, you know, uh, big adventure is, uh, riding the Camino de Santiago in Northern Spain. And I've also just been invited to Switzerland to do some of the more popular bike rides that are part of the Tour de France, um, out there as well. So, so that's, I have those both in my sight. And your mantra is living unleashed. When I'm going to, again, I'll put a note to your website as well, because you really have become, I think, a healer and you've got a much more spiritual quality than some of the stuff that I'm seeing on you. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what people will find when they go to Rissa Unleashed. I want to inspire and I want to help people remove those blocks and limiting beliefs because oftentimes we're our own block. We're, we're the ones limiting ourselves. And those are just things. So how do we go around them or over them or through them? And the one thing I, I ask myself in every situation is, well, what can I do? Instead of looking at the things I can't do, well, what can I do? 
And it reminds me of going back to when, when I was in my, in the midst of my radiation treatments, I, I couldn't walk to the mailbox. I couldn't get on my bike. So I started painting. I don't consider myself an artist, but I started painting and I started um, gifting people with um, these um, Native American inspired talking sticks. People were like, these are amazing. And now I sell them all over the world. And, and I don't do it for the money, but I do it because it's a, such a healing process for me. And so, so I'll never like, so for me, it's, well, what can I do? I end my shows with my takeaways, my three takeaways. The first one is I like both me's. You know, you talked about your two me's. And it's almost like you have two very different personalities. But I, I want to hug that first me who grew up in a, an abusive household that no child deserves and how you just sought validation in this new me that just says, I want to live. Second thing that I think is so important for the listeners is the importance of having a bucket list and not just as a dream, but animating it in a way that even if a situation is horrific as yours was, sometimes that dream becomes a light on a path that forces you to to go from, I can't walk to the mailbox to starting to get on a bike to doing what you accomplished. And the last thing is just, and I just changed it when you talked about Unleashed is the sense that so often the circumstances we have to overcome in life are circumstances we've created or accepted and maybe sometimes want because they keep us from pushing forward. They're an excuse. And I think what you said is that when you can go through them, when you can decide that you can do it or pivot. And I love what you said. I tried these different things. I could, I, when I couldn't ride, I started to paint. I took these courses. Some of them make me giggle, but at least they kept me moving forward. And I think for all of that, I think it's amazing. And I think in some ways, a tumor you never asked for or wanted, the lack of control that it gave you, in some way, it also gave you a new lens and appetite for life where you can accept the love of others and accept who you are. And maybe as tough as it was, it's going to be time even better well spent as you go through your life. It's just interesting that you can find gifts in the most unexpected places. <laughs> Joining me now is Wayne Bosser. He's a deputy chairman and head of global ultra high worth net clients. I'm actually going to focus on what Wayne does outside of the RBC. Wayne, you've been involved in healthcare for a long time, serving on a number of boards, including Trillium. And more recently, I read that you're involved with Brain Canada Foundation. That's exactly right, Tony. What attracted you to the Brain Canada Foundation? What do they do? Brain Canada is a national not-for-profit organization which funds brain research. We've been around for about 25 years, and we really focus on supporting bold, out-of-the-box neuroscience that leads to better detection, treatment, sometimes even cures for people living with brain conditions whether it's traumatic brain injury or hundreds of other brain diseases that affects us all. you got to know, Tony, Canada is one of the five most active countries in neuroscience. Canadian researchers have contributed to major scientific advancements in brain research that have furthered the field both nationally and globally. And we're thrilled at Brain Canada to be playing a part in that success. Wayne, how do we make sure that when we have that kind of intellectual firepower, and I'm also understanding we've got it in AI, quantum computing, that we can keep it in Canada, that Canada, you know, it turns not only to just contributing to the world, but also contributing to purposeful jobs, more research, 
a great experience for uh, for the economy in general. Yeah, I think a huge part of that, Tony, is our ability to keep the researchers in Canada, keep that intellectual horsepower at home where they want to be. But they need access to funding. They need access to special resources. And that's specifically what Brain Canada does. It's a unique partnership with the federal government, specifically Health Canada, that matches federal government funding through the Brain Canada, uh, the Canada Brain Research Fund, with contributions from donors and partners. To date, Brain Canada has matched nearly $145 million. That means $300 million invested in Canadian researchers doing brain research in this country and keeping them close to home. For my research, RBC just made a major donation to support the foundation. This is not a new uh, commitment either. It's, I think, really important to recognize. We've been involved with Brain Canada since its inception more than 25 years ago. And it was a recognition by our former CEO and chair at the time, Alan Taylor, and uh, Michael Wilson, who both looked at it and said, corporate Canada needs to do more. The human, social, economic impact of brain-related conditions of all types is just too large for us not to take a leadership role. And so we were one of the founding members of Brain Canada. We've been actively engaged. We've committed funding, volunteer hours. We've got many of our staff that are involved with uh, Brain Canada-related activities. And you're right, very recently, we committed $2 million to create a um, youth mental health platform powered by RBC Future Launch that supports some of the pioneering research led by Dr. Sean Hill from CAMH. And they're doing extraordinary things to bring data insights and solutions through the bold research that Dr. Hill and so many others are leading. Wayne Bossert, it's always a pleasure to chat with you, and I'm so happy, Donnelly, you came on a chat that matters. It was just music to my ears when I, you just know that Corporate Canada is doing their part to, uh, you know, as your mission statement says, to help people thrive and communities prosper. So thank you for joining me. Tony, it was great to be with you, and thanks for leading the way in this important area as well. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening, and let's chat soon.